Welcome to the Young Pro Podcast, where our goal is to better equip people working with young adults to grow God's kingdom. Today, we have on Joseph Matthias to teach us how to go about answering some of the most frequently asked questions by non-believers for Christians in a way that doesn't look to win an argument, but to help them discover more understanding. I'm your host, Travis Wiesenberg, and this is the Young Pro Podcast. Welcome back to the Young Pro Podcast. Today we have a special podcast. Today we're going to talk and go over apologetics, some basic apologetics we can use to help non-Christians, people with little faith background, uh, find some more understanding over some of the more complicated questions or the the most frequently asked questions by people who do not have a relationship with God. So today we have on Joseph Matthias, who is a UCO staffer. He's been working with UCO staff for 10 years. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I guess just jumping into it, I think before we, we kind of go over some of the main questions that we want to have you answer and uh, go through, I think the bigger question is what's your thought process when trying to, to answer these questions from someone who, who doesn't have a faith background or has a very limited faith perspective, but still, instead of just trying to win a conversation, I guess, how do you help them find understanding without having the common basis of faith? Mm-hmm. You know, I think... People ask questions for all different kinds of reasons, and the same question could come from different places depending on who's asking it and why they're asking it. So I think a helpful, just a helpful guide for us is to try to answer the person, not the question. Hmm. Uh, you know, by answer the person, I mean uh, partly just to focus on who the person is, uh, to to engage them personally rather than simply as a as a, a disputant or hmm. you know the. the or a standardized test or something, you know. Um, part of that is is that, you know, when we get asked difficult questions, an immediate reaction, very simple human reaction, is, is to be, to go on the defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get more defensive the less confident we are about our answer. Mm. And that of, that, of course, draws us into ourselves, right? That, that draws us into defending our own pride, our own reputation, our own smarts. What we really want to do as Christians is is focus on the other person, not on ourselves. So when someone's asking a question, try to understand, first of all, where they're coming from, and then what manner of answer is going to, to help them the most. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, just So just more focusing on the, the person than, it, than solving like their question, as in you would... A standardized test or something that has a, a only one one specific answer it's more mm-hmm. tailoring the answer to the person asking it yeah and that's not to say that you uh <laughs> you change the story depending <laughs> on the, you know i mean the the questions often will be you know people have objective questions for which there are objective answers mm-hmm. there are right answers there are wrong answers but the manner in which you answer should be adapted to what the person's seeking and what's going to be helpful for them So why, why do Christians feel that they have to, to push their faith on others? Can't they just be content with just using it for themselves and I can do whatever I want? Why do, why do they have to push it on other people? 
Yeah. <laughs> now, when you get that kind of question, I mean, this is this is a great case of the answer the person, not the question. Mm-hmm. Usually, if someone says that, the reason is they feel that you're pushing your faith upon them, mm-hmm. uh, or or they're afraid that you're about to start doing that. Hmm. That immediately should uh, should make you think. Okay, what's first of all? Have I done something that's going that's communicating that? Mm. Am I carrying myself in a pushy way? Um. Uh, and that might be the case, and it might not be. Hmm. Uh, often, people are just insecure because they're uncomfortable discussing religion in general. <laughs> um. Uh, and so it's not it's not necessarily your fault, but you want to be aware of where they're at. Mm. Most likely that's where that question is coming from. But let's take the objective content of the question. Why do Christians feel they have to push their faith on others? Uh, the first thing I'd, I'd do there is say there's a difference between pushing your faith on someone and sharing your faith with someone. Hmm. We, in fact, don't want to push our faith upon others. Faith really has to be a free assent to uh, whatever is proposed for belief, and uh, there there shouldn't there can't be compulsion in it. We wanna uh, so we don't wanna, as Paul says, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways mm. when we proclaim the gospel. That's Second Corinthians four. We don't want to be underhanded or manipulative. Mm. Uh, we don't want to push people. Um, but we do want to share. If the gospel is true, the truth is supposed to be shared. And that's especially true for something so consequential as the way to eternal life. Hmm. So we want to share the way to eternal life because it would be cruel to withhold that and it's a mercy to present it. We re- if we really believe this saves, then we want everyone to know. Yeah, that's great. Okay, this next one, I think, is one that's really sprung up recently, maybe the past couple of decades, but I see it a lot in the young professional world. And it's this this concept of spirituality versus uh, being religious. And, then, and I think a common thing people say is, I'm, I'm spiritual, not religious. Why, why do I need to follow a specific religion to know God? Mm-hmm. My first response to that with most people would, would be to ask, what do you mean by that? Hmm. What do you mean when you say you're spiritual? People can mean different things by that. My suspicion is that many people mean nothing by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't know what they mean. <laughs> uh, it sounds good, and they've heard someone else say it. Right. Um, or they might mean, well, I believe in God, and I try to be a good person. Yeah. Well, that's an inroad for the gospel right there. Hmm. Now, where does this spring from? This this objection really springs from modern individualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, religion, you know, people will sometimes put the adjective organized religion. Yeah. Uh, I prefer my religion disorganized. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Spirituality is kind of perceived as is more spontaneous. It's uh, it's not uh, subject to sort of group mentalities or something. Uh, that's seen as a more positive thing. But truth is what's held in common. That is to say, something is true when I can assert that it's the case and you can agree with me. And then we have something in common. That kind of shared truth is 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 fundamental to relationship. Not meaning that you can't have a relationship with someone with whom you disagree, but uh, some element of, of 
shared acknowledgement of what's true, what's good, that's that's crucial to, to having any kind of relationship where you strive towards a common goal. Hmm. And if we're all inventing our own truth, if we're all manufacturing our own spirituality, we don't share that with anyone. And if we if we veer into falsehood from it, we have no one to check us on that. Hmm. So that, that's one way I would respond to that. But, um, you know, people do still desire relationship. As ruggedly individualistic as people are, sure. and as averse to commitment as modern people may be, what organized religion, so to speak, gives you is uh, being able to share a knowledge of the truth together and to, to rally around the most important things in life, the most fundamental goals in life. People crave that. And uh, as soon as they get a good taste of, <laughs> of some of the, maybe the more winning aspects of organized religion, say a Taco Tuesday, you know, mm-hmm. that's organized religion, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when people organize around tacos, it's a lot better than uh, your, you know, your private incense candle and your loaf of stale bread on a Tuesday <laughs> night, right? Yeah. Does that, uh, does that give a helpful answer? Yeah, to that? I, I think don't know if I totally answered you. No, I, I think that does. I think that answers it pretty well as far as just thinking about what are they looking for and where it stem, stems from. It's just that that individualism that uh, that kind of leads people to isolation, which then leads them to wanting community and kind of putting putting what used to be in their mind and, and it is in their mind as a problem. Organized religion is actually the solution that they're really desiring is I think something that's interesting from your answer is that what they what they seek is actually what they, they don't want, um, which is true in a lot of these questions. But yeah. I think, okay, here's, uh, here's one of the big ones, one of the most common one. Uh, mm-hmm. If God is supposedly all-loving, why would he send people to eternal hell? Mm-hmm. This, is, uh, this is a very difficult question. Uh, well, for most people, I'm not sure that it's a very difficult question to answer, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's one that I actually I enjoy the chance to talk about this question because I mm-hmm. think there there are so many people who are um, who wrestle with it, mm-hmm. and there actually are some very good answers. And C.S. Lewis, I think, is really definitive mm-hmm. in answering this question. There, there's, um, I think, he was one of the early earlier Christian authors who saw how people were wrestling with this, this question of eternal punishment, and who who really sought to answer it in a way that people would find uh, reasonable, Mm -hmm. just, and loving. And and he deals with it in more than one of his works. Uh, It's certainly there in Mere Christianity. It's a a kind of central theme in The Great Divorce, which is a kind of work of fictional allegory that I would um, hmm. highly recommend. It's not a, not a long work. His fundamental, probably most helpful thesis on this point is that the, the doors to hell are locked from the inside. Hmm. That hell is selfishness. Hell is getting your own way. And the kind of person who ends up in hell is the kind of person who has definitively chosen against God for the sake of themselves. And you might say, why, you know, if it's... uh, Now, that really does lead to torment. Mm -hmm. The reason the scriptures describe hell in terms of fire and sulfur uh, and 
uh, outer darkness and wailing and gnashing of teeth is because if you're cut off from God, he's the source of all good. Mm -hmm. Uh, All comfort, all consolation will be lost to you. What um, people find hard to believe sometimes is that anyone would willingly choose that when faced with the prospect of the opportunity to turn to God. But in fact, people people do. People mm-hmm. choose that every day. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're making choices day by day, as C.S. Lewis puts it, that, that are gradually <laughs> steering us toward uh, incomparable bliss or, or turning us towards becoming an, something that would be an object of horror to anyone who saw it. Mm-hmm. And when... Uh, when the flesh is stripped away and the naked desire of the soul is seen, that's what will be revealed. To, uh, what's what will be, will be shown to be. Mm. There's there's also a good uh, uh, Catholic apologist on this point, Robert Barron. Uh, he's a he's a bishop who refers to this as spiritual physics. Mm. Our, our our judgment is spiritual physics. If if all your life you chose against God. And if, uh, if you never had any desire for God, then what would heaven be to you? Hmm. It would be your worst, worst nightmare. Right. It would be, uh, you know, either just um, intolerably dull or more likely uh, harrowingly torturous. Hmm. Uh, a theology professor I had said, that's the thing, is the, the, the fire of God's love. You know, it says our God is a consuming fire. Well, the wrath of God is is how we experience God's love when we're resisting Him. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're set against God's love, then that's how you're going to you know it, heaven would be hell enough for you. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. I've heard it heard it also. Like this question turned kind of back to the asker, not in a I'm going to win this argument kind of way, but just in a making them think a little bit would be. Like what a loving God for somebody to be in heaven with them is kind of the point that you're mm-hmm. getting at is is that if you have a taste fundamentally for darkness, you actually don't have a taste for light and actually can't stand it. Mm-hmm. Um, is how can you believe something like Christianity when there's no reason or proof behind it? So I guess more of like the the proof or the reason behind the hope that that it's not you know just a psychological crutch. Hmm. Well, let's let's also take the same approach of what's what's behind that mm-hmm. objection that there's uh, there's no reason or proof behind it. Now, sometimes where people might be coming from there is uh, you, you find this sometimes among university students, and, and it may come also from their professors. Um, there can be an anti intellectual strain within Christian culture that that really discredits the gospel mm-hmm. or, uh, or doesn't do credit to the gospel. Sometimes you find Christians denying certain kinds of scientific evidence because they want, because they are threatened by it. Mm-hmm. They, they get defensive about it, or because they're political. They 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 see their religious convictions as tied to their political affiliations, um, and a particular scientific uh, datum is inconvenient to, <laughs> uh, to that, uh, to their political position. Um, so people may be coming from a real objection that, hey, you know, uh, I've met some Christians who really seem not that interested in the truth, mm. in, the, in the kind of 
impartial investigation of the truth, who seem quite unscrupulous about suppressing the truth. Hmm. Um, that might be the case. Now, as to the, the objective problem itself, uh, the way you put it is, why would you believe in something that, like Christianity that has no reason? Uh, use your words again. That has where there's no reason or proof behind it. Ah, reason or proof behind it. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would just say it's th- that there's no reason behind it is simply not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and sometimes Christians fall in the, into the trap of of thinking that. Yeah, you know, faith is fundamentally unreasonable. It's irrational. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's true anyway, and that's what's so wonderful about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, if it's, if it's irrational, if it's inherently contradictory, it can't be true. Right. <laughs> Christianity isn't, however, inherently contradictory. And if it is true, it should actually, uh, it should make sense of the world. Mm. And it does. Mm-hmm. That's not the same as a proof. Mm-hmm. And there is a need for faith. But faith is not an irrational act. Before proceeding further, I think one of the one of the questions I would say is, why does the burden of proof, however, rest with only those who believe in God? Hmm. Why should the presumption of correctness be on the side of atheism, as many people think it is? People often take for granted that the atheist position is the more rational position, or that the skeptical position is the more rational position, because that's what they've heard, or that's what that's what mm-hmm. that's the way atheists or skeptics have presented themselves, and they've they've marketed themselves very well. But why should the burden of proof be with the person who believes in God? To to leave aside Christianity for the moment and to simply take atheism versus monotheism. Mm-hmm. The argument there is whether the universe has a cause beyond itself or not. Mm-hmm. That, when we come down to it, is the center of the dispute between atheism and theism or monotheism. Does the universe have a cause outside itself? Well, if you take a fundamentally atheist, naturalist, materialist conception of the universe, well, the universe as we know it has laws, and one of the most fundamental of those is the law of conservation of matter and energy. Mm. Matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. Listen to that. It cannot be created or destroyed. Well, that raises the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Hmm. If it cannot be created, why is it here? Now, that's that's a question that's crying out for an answer. Mm-hmm. That's evidence that's crying out for <laughs> an explanation. And if you say that the universe is its own cause, especially when you look at the evidence that for the Big Bang. The Big Bang was, uh, atheists were, as I understand it, were, were laboring to disprove the Big Bang when it first uh, was <laughs> proposed. Because <laughs> it pointed to a discrete moment in time for the beginning of the universe. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the evidence just couldn't be avoided. All the evidence pointed towards it. Why, you know, what caused that? Now, atheists will say, well, you say that God caused that, but what caused God? That avoids the, the, the definition itself. Mm-hmm. The definition of God is that he is the cause that's not caused. Mm-hmm. And in order to account for the existence of the universe, you need to posit a cause that is not itself mm-hmm. caused. Otherwise, there is no answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? It's seen then that 
monotheism or theism is is not an irrational position. In fact, many have found it the more rational position uh, because um, there just doesn't seem any other good explanation. Now, it doesn't mean that all of Christianity is true. It doesn't mean that the whole Bible is true. Mm. Uh, but it certainly uh, puts the ball back in the atheist's court to say, so yeah, uh, how do you account for your own existence? Hmm. Okay, last question. Why why do bad things happen to good people? And I think I think for Christians it's, it's easy to explain, but I think explaining it to someone who doesn't have a, a basis of sin and a basis of the fallen nature of mankind, I think it's a little bit it's a little bit harder for people to swallow. Is that's this question that everybody grapples with, Christian or not? Is why do good things happen, or why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes people wonder why good things happen to bad people. Yeah, that's true too. That's true too. (laughs) But of course, when someone asks that, usually something bad has happened to them or Mm -hmm. to someone they love, Mm -hmm. and that, of course, you know, you want to deal with the hurting person before you deal with their raging question of why. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when something terrible happens, people cry out why, but really, why they're coming? They're crying out for. Not just a rational answer. And often we don't have that answer for the specific circumstances. But they're really crying out for uh, for consolation, for comfort. I remember meeting a, a, a young man in high school who we had only been friends for maybe three days. And he said to me, I'm an atheist. Um, and I was sexually abused as a kid. Hmm. And I just don't see how a good God would let something like that happen to me. Well, I didn't go to an, into an apologetics on uh, on the problem of theodicy, the, the issue of hmm. reconciling uh, the problem of evil. What I did in that moment is I simply, in my heart, prayed briefly, "Holy Spirit, give me the words to say," because hmm. I don't, I don't know what to say, but I want to love this guy in front of me. And I couldn't tell you what I said <laughs> in that moment. But I can tell you that at the end of the conversation, he was open to faith in God. And he expressed that in the conversation. He said, this is, uh, I feel a door opening here to believing in God. That's never been open to me before. And what I didn't do was justify the ways of God to men. I didn't, hmm. I didn't tell him why he was actually abused. I didn't know. So it's, uh, you know, people don't want cut and dry answers mm-hmm. to their problems. Um, and the Bible doesn't even give us that. Hmm. The story of Job, Job never finds out why he's suffering. The reader knows. Mm-hmm. Even then, the reader may be a little little ticked off to see yeah. God uh, allowing Job to on- undergo these things in order to uh, to prove a point, as it mm. seems. Uh, and Job gets no answer, but he does get a vindication for his hope. He hopes in the Lord and doesn't cast his hope behind him. He says, 
I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on the last day. And Job's restoration, you know, some people say, oh, the restoration of Job was the addition of, a, of another editor who, <laughs> who just wanted to sort of give, give, a, you know, give a happy ending so people would like the story more. Well, <laughs> maybe it was another editor. I don't know. I wasn't there. Neither were the people making those claims. <laughs> but Job's restoration, where he receives uh, more than what he had lost, is really a prefiguration of the return of Christ in the last judgment. Hmm. Um, when he does judge justly. Now that we have to remember. When someone, say, loses a child to cancer, we have to remember that death is not the end. Hmm. Uh, and you know, even the worst suffering of cancer will be a slight and momentary affliction that we will look back on with, with relief and not with resentment when we're in the incomparable bliss of the presence of God. Hmm. That's a hope that we need to hold out to people. And it's also what, in a sense, justifies the kind of suffering we go through. But but also, the you know, suffer, suffering is used by the Lord for our good. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. a chastening for sin that calls people to repentance. Sometimes uh, it's, it's something that you undergo that disciplines you. Sometimes it tests your trust in the Lord. And if you respond with faith to your suffering, you will grow nearer to the Lord. Mm-hmm. To the person who's suffering, though, the, the most important thing we can hold out to them is Jesus crucified, bearing the suffering of the human race with us. What other God has done that? What other religion gives us a God who enters our own suffering? That's, uh, that's not a cut-and-dry answer. That's not an easy answer. But that's a tremendous consolation for anyone who's going through however terrible a calamity. Any, any last words of encouragement for fellow young professionals that when trying to answer these questions or trying to have conversations around these topics? Yeah. I would encourage I would encourage young professionals. I would encourage anyone. Wrestle with the big questions. Hmm. If you have actually uh, seriously asked these questions yourself, and they're good questions. None of the questions here were bad questions. If you really want to know the truth, wrestle with those questions. Don't be afraid of them. Hmm. Um, are you afraid that you'll lose your faith because you, because <laughs> you ask the question and you, and you and it turns out that oh, the, my my faith falls apart. Well, then how how strong was it in the first place? Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. If you're the one who asks them, you will be able to answer them uh, from the perspective of the person who's asking you. I also love to recommend a rate a resource. I've mentioned C.S. Lewis and his apologetics stuff is still very relevant. But there's also some, you know, there are issues that have come up in our time that are really particular to young professionals today. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- one book I would strongly recommend is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Tim Keller pastors a, a church that's largely young professionals and the most secularized young professionals of all. It's in, it's in Manhattan. It's in New York City. He's had tremendous success with evangelizing the people who are typically unchurched because they're very career-driven, because they are the kind of intellectual elite. Hmm. 
And so he's, he deals with these kinds of questions on a daily basis, not only with questions about the existence of God, the meaning of life, but uh, questions about the hot-button issues, so homosexuality, um, uh, transgenderism and stuff. You know, those are things that, you know, it's New York. <laughs> those mm-hmm. are hot issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joseph, thank you for your time, and thank you for, for answering these questions for us and giving us an outline and framework how to, how to grapple with them ourselves. So thank you. An honor to be here. Thanks, Travis.